You are listening to the weekly Great Governance Podcast hosted by Dr. Harlan. So why do we do what we do? We are on a mission to find and voice the hidden stories of excellence in local government so that others are motivated to lead and transform communities. We share information and profile local government practitioners and active citizens who are ethically leading change and innovation in communities and showcase this on our various digital media platforms. Tonight, it's my wonderful privilege to speak to a dear friend of mine who I met in the 80s at Spesbona High School in Athlone, Patrick Kadali. And Patrick is also the brother of the late Rhoda Kadali. And we thought it uh, good if we can speak to Patrick about the life of Rhoda and maybe from a different perspective. So welcome on this platform, uh, Patrick. Alan, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, man. Always good to, to catch up with you, albeit under these circumstances. But uh, thanks so much for, for having me on your show. Yes, and, and first of all, let me also express our condolences with the passing of Rhoda. Rhoda was a remarkable woman. She was a public intellectual and a public figure who was not afraid to speak truth to power. But tell us, who was Rhoda Kadali? It's probably a difficult question to answer. I want to read something that... Uh, Abu Solomon, and I don't know if you remember Abu Solomon. I remember Mr. Abu Solomon, yeah. Yeah, he eventually became the principal at Pesbona, but he wrote this about, about Rhoda. And he says, it's called Remembering Me. Remembering Me for Rhoda Kadali. When you speak about me after my death, speak about me, not yourself. Say how I am missed for things you didn't like. Don't sanitize my memory by outlining only my virtues. Let me stand between you and the line that divides us just as I was, authentic, not some polite version of me. Tell the people how obnoxious I was at times, even offensive, how I hated safe superficiality political correctness. Speak about me, not what you think you should say about me to placate hypocrites. Talk about all of me if you want to remember me. Holland, that so actually sums up who Rhoda was. She was an open book, you know. She Mm. was fearless. I mean, growing up, uh, largely Rhoda reared us because my mom was involved in so many things. So, you know, I grew up under Rhoda's hand. What I got to see in Rhoda as a young boy growing up was a loving sister, an adoring sister that cared for us, you know. That image of who she was probably stuck with me throughout the years. And look, we've had contentious issues in the family. Believe me, we're a big family. We're nine siblings. You can imagine mm. the debates, the discussion, whether it's religion, whether it's politics, you know, education, etc. We all had a different view of the world. But Rhoda was typically the one that held the line. You know, she felt strong about certain things. But this was her identity. The one side that people probably didn't see much of, Rhoda, was the softer side. Mm. The giving side, the caring side, you know. She had a big heart. And I think it was something that we all probably inherited from our father. Your father was a minister, eh? And your grandfather, so now that you touch on your father, your grandfather was the first, Clemens Kadali was the first black trade unionist in this country. Yes, correct. And he started the Industrial Commercial Workers Union. 
And it was a legacy. It was a, it was a great legacy that we had in, in our grandfather in terms of what he did. And this was in the early 1920s where he glued this organization, doc, the dock workers, mm. essentially. Uh, he glued that union to over 100,000 members and they were huge. Sure. They were probably the largest independent movement in this country at that stage. But the, the other side of that was, was that because he was such an activist and involved in union matters, he neglected his family. My father had to leave school very early to support his mom and his siblings, you know. So on the one hand, we had this legacy in our grandfather and what he stood for and what he did. And on the other hand, you know, my father grew up seeing all of this. Mm. Uh, but he himself was a victim of that, of, of his father's success, if I can call it that, mm. you know. Um, and he and he chose the ministry as his legacy. And it's interesting, you know, coming back to Rhoda, is that I see... I almost see both elements of my grandfather and my father in him. I was going to ask you that question. Why do you think that these two two worlds, you know, the trade unionist, more humanist and fighting for the rights of workers and your father, the more spiritual man, what influence did this have on Rhoda's life and on the family? I think, yeah, I think, I, look, I think for all of us it had a massive, it had a massive impact, but I think it became the, the blueprint for who Rhoda was. You know, she was vocal. She was, I mean, as you know, Rhoda was very uh, controversial, adversarial. I can use so many different terms to describe Rhoda. But it was born out of the right to fight for justice and what is right, you know, and standing up for what is right. She always believed in that. And on the other hand, you know, Rhoda, as you know, Rhoda was involved with Impumilelo, an NGO that recognized social impact and social causes. And there I saw my father. You know, my father was the guy who would, who would get us up on a Saturday morning in his combi so we can go and feed people in the road or in the communities and give out soup, you know? His whole life was based on, on social justice and community and, you know, and community work at his church. So when I look at road and I think back to who Rhoda was, I kind of see these two very strong individuals that kind of permeated through her, her own personality, if I can call it that. Mm. And I think it's, you know, in retrospect, I think it, it was a wonderful thing. She could balance both. And as a matter of fact, in a sense, it almost fused into into what she became in her later life. Yeah. Rhoda also did some amazing work at the University of the Working Class at UWC. Tell us about the work at her legacy at UWC. Well, look, I mean, you know, in the aftermath of Rhoda's of passing, I mean, UWC put out a very beautiful uh, acknowledgement of who Rhoda was and what she did at the university. But I do think, you know, the one cause that she's been recognized for strongly has been to fight for the rights of women and those that are disadvantaged. She started the gender equity unit. I mean, there's been so much said about this in the media, and I, and I repeat all of this. But she she basically, be, you know, she was the architect for women's rights at UWC, and that's where it started through the gender equity unit that she started. And even to, you know, till this day, there are policies that UWC adopted that was extremely progressive for its time, where they started recognizing women, not just in terms of job profession, but equity in terms of pay and benefits and all of these good things. And Rhoda was the pioneer behind all of that, you know. So, I mean, a chosen field of study with anthropology, as a matter of fact, when she started at, at UWC many years ago. But you can see that Rhoda had, had always had an alignment to understanding culture and social structures. 
and then trying to impact that in a way that brought lasting change. And she was disruptive in the way that she did it, you know, to the point that she offended many people. Her strength was uh, in her belief that she was doing the right thing. I think that was that was pioneering work in the 80s, like you so rightly say. But besides UWC, what does the family consider some of our other career highlights? Her was involved in so many in so many different things. Outside of UWC, she had a love for the arts. She was involved with the Cape Town for Michael Kester for many years. Uh, she was involved with the Baxter Theatre. She sat on the board of the box Baxter Theatre. She sat on various. She was on the Senate of UWC and I think of UCT as well. But I, you know, if I, if I think about her her career highlights, then it's they are special. A moment that I can think of, you know, when she paid tribute to my father when he passed away, mm. and you know, it might not, it might not align to the, to the notion of career. I think, you know, Rhoda, whether it was a work character or a personal life, was as I said earlier, it was just, it was just confused. So she did so many wonderful things. I mean, the work that she did at at, at Impumalela, again, it was groundbreaking. If you think about what she did in terms of one recognizing a social innovation and the impact of social innovation and how she raised money to support these organizations all over the country, you know. So she was passionate about it, and she she really invested so much of her life and her time into that organization. I'm glad that when she retired, you know, she could hand over the organization, intellectual capital that she, yeah. that she built over the years around social projects. I mean, these became case studies and benchmarks for social innovation and social entrepreneurship in the country. Was she the founder of that organization? She was. And what would you say drove her? You know, I, I'm sure she could have chosen a career in politics, but yet she decided to stay in the space of social innovation. Why? Well, look, it's interesting. I mean, she, you know, as you know, Mandela appointed as, as human rights commissioner in 96. And she became very disillusioned with what she was seeing in government. And she turned her back on government and that job, simply because she believed that it wasn't uh, aligned to, to who she was and what she believed. And from there, she established Impumaleno. And I think it's because through the through the work that she did at the Human Rights Commission and what she saw and what she experienced, I think it resonated with her at some level. You know, the things that she saw and experienced and, you know, being at the cold face of real struggle, I think opened her eyes to a whole new world. Mm. And that I think that birthed this notion of Impumaleo and what and what she did at Impumaleo. Mm. So I must say, you know, for me, coming back to your question, the original question of Korea Island, I think you know, by far, Impumalelo and the work she did there and the impact that she had and reach uh, stands out, you know, mostly. You know, at, at some very short period of time, I worked with that Impumalelo. I was there and I could see, you know, and we started doing some really innovative things for that period that we were together. Okay. And you touched on this earlier, but, you know, the public persona and this woman with ice in her veins and the family person, was this the same person? Absolutely. I think that uh, what is lost on a lot of people is that Rhoda was no different in the family as she was in the public domain. You know, we didn't get a version two mm. of Rhoda in the family. This was who Rhoda was. So, as I, you know, as I said earlier, Alan, we went to the family through some challenging times with Rhoda, simply because she was so visible in the public eye. And the assumption, of course, in the public's view was that we were all aligned in the way we thought about things. Rhoda being the, the, the kind of vocal 
piece, you know, spokesperson. There was an assumption that we all believed what she believed, which wasn't necessarily true, you know. We had our arguments and our debates. We didn't speak to each other for long periods of time. No different to, you know, what, what, what some people are saying out there and friends that she had and knew. It was no different for us. So in that sense, I think uh, Rhoda was just, Rhoda spoke the truth, mm. irrespective, you know. And there was, there was no immunity for the family, none whatsoever. Mm. Final question. So looking back, how do you and the family wish for South Africa to remember Rhoda Kadali? And what is now next for the Kadali family? Who takes over the mantle? Honest, I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, I, you know, reading through the articles and discussions on social media, etc., a lot of people kind of look at Rhoda today as the activist to move to the far right. And I'm talking about her alliance to, to Trump in the, in the yeah. United States. But I do think Rhoda was far bigger than that. And, you know, I don't think, I think what people mustn't lose sight of is the legacy of Rhoda can't be analyzed in that one final moment, mm. in the final aspects of her life post-retirement. I think that Rhoda should be remembered for the kind of person who she was, because I think post-1994, we needed critical voice, you know. We needed to ensure that in order to strengthen our democracy, we needed strong people in this country that could actively participate in the discourse, in the political discourse, and critically analyze uh, what was going wrong. And she became that voice for a lot of people, you know. So I think uh, the legacy and, and the kind of person that I would like to think really should be remembered as is that activist, that individual who stood up for, for justice, mm. who had a very clear black and white view of the world in terms of rights and wrong, defended her truth, you know, but also uh, had a major impact on so many people's lives. You know, it was like my father's funeral. On the day of the funeral that we had in the city hall, the city hall was packed. There were thousands of people. We couldn't understand how he reached so many people in his life. You know, we had no idea. And uh, it was it was something that resonated with us because we then realized in his death, we then realized the massive impact that he had on people. And I think the same the same is true for Rosa. Mm. You know, we'll, we'll still feel the aftershock of the tremendous work that she did for years to come. As somebody who fought against that classification, after 1994, people suddenly asserted themselves and their different identity. Coloured in the new South Africa has become an epithet of pride where people assert who they are. And suddenly in the new South Africa, the term I most rejected, I am almost compelled to appropriate as an assertion that I am part of this new South Africa. So I find the notion colored before 1994 a burden as much as I find it a burden now, because now it's an assertion for recognition that colored people also were part of the liberation movement, dating back to the struggles of the Khoi and the Sun and Achumato and Tabata and the new non-European unity movement, Dr. Abdurrahman, my own grandfather, Clemens Kadali, all these people who made their own contribution to a non-racial South Africa. So it's a burden for me because I just want to be a South African. I don't want to be a colored South African. I don't want to be an anything South African. I just want to be a South African. What you celebrate is what you are. Now, being colored 
is a problematic notion because we come from everywhere and that's why the apartheid government couldn't classify us. We have African roots, we have Indian roots, we have Khoi and Sun roots and European roots. And because of our diversity, it is very difficult to identify us as a group. Colored people, I don't know what it is in colored people, but they have the capacity to laugh at their disaster and often turns against them where they can't be serious enough about the things that hurt. And maybe it's a survival mechanism, this colored humor. To the amazing and talented Great Governance team, The Voice, Mpumilali, and producer Al Ontong, respect and love. Keep the faith and let's work to make South Africa great, right where we are. If you loved what you heard, subscribe to our Great Governance podcast that is available free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And of course, also on our HRD Governance Facebook page. And don't forget to tell a friend to tell a friend about us. Listen to learn.